This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach innovation, entrepreneurship, as well as product design. I'm happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Abhi Ramesh, who's the founder and CEO of Misfits Market. Abhi, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. First things first, let's point our listeners to your website. You've got a, a nice a nice domain. It's misfitsmarket.com. No hyphens, no nonsense, no misspellings, just misfitsmarket.com. And Abby, I think if I if I parse your LinkedIn properly, you're a Wharton grad. I am. I am. I graduated a few years ago. Um, I was I was in the Huntsman program, so uh, oh, great. In, in the college. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so great, great to welcome you back virtually to the school and uh, let's hear your story. So let's start. Oh, and the other thing is you're, if I'm not mistaken, you're based in Philadelphia. I am. Yeah. So our, our, our HQ is, uh, is, is in Philadelphia, right outside of Philly, actually. Um, but yeah. That's awesome. All right. Okay. So give us the elevator pitch for Misfits Market. Absolutely. So, you know, the concept is quite simple. We work with farms around the country to rescue produce that would go to waste for reasons that we think are somewhat irrational. Uh, and then we, we repackage that, that product and send it directly to uh, consumers' doorsteps. And the idea is that they can uh, you know, help solve the food waste problem and save money by doing so at the same time. So you get a box of misfit, ugly produce delivered to your doorstep at a fraction of you know, grocery store prices. So if I, were, if I were a subscriber in the Philadelphia region this this week what would i what would be in my box yeah it's a really good question so you know we this is an awesome time to be in the northeast it's kind of peak harvesting season here in the summer so um you know we have uh, on a weekly basis probably around 50 to 60 different types of uh, fruits and vegetables um so you'll see you know a lot of summer fruit um you know your stone fruit of the world peaches uh, nectarines apricots uh, you know, apples, oranges, pears. We also source things from other parts of the country. Um, so you may get avocados, you may get mangoes, you'll get a ton of different types of potential leafy greens, um, kale, Swiss chard, lettuce. So really, you know, any, any you know, major type of fruit, fruit and vegetable you can think of, uh, we will have it at some point, you know, throughout the year. And then tell us a little bit about the sizes of the boxes and what the prices are. Sure. So we currently offer two box sizes. The small box is called the Mischief Box. Uh, affectionately so, and the large box is called the Madness Box. Uh, the small box is, is roughly 13 pounds of produce, uh, and it costs $19 plus, uh, plus shipping, which is $4.50. Uh, and the large box is about 26, 27 pounds of produce, and it's $34 plus shipping. Um, and, and just to give you perspective, this is all organic, um, you know, certified organic produce. Uh, and it's roughly you know thirty to fifty percent cheaper than what you get at the grocery store. Yeah, so it's coming in. I was I was just at Whole Foods yesterday, so it's your your produce looks like it's coming in around two dollars a pound, all in. And I agree with you for for most things, that's quite a bit less than I would pay at at, at Whole Foods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good deal. And but I don't have any. So it's a little bit of a of a of a mystery box, right? I don't I don't control what I get. 
I get what I get. Correct. So you know, you'll you'll get a list of what is available. Uh, you know, in, in, in a week, uh, generally in advance of that week, uh, and then you'll get some sort of assortment of fruits and vegetables from that list. But you may not know what you're getting. Uh, we are rolling out. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a it's a secret, but we're actually kind of releasing that secret slowly. But we're rolling out customization uh, to all of our customers gradually over the next few months. And so, uh, you know, within within the next couple months, you'll be able to see what's on a list and actually choose the 13 pounds or the 26 pounds of produce that goes inside of your box. But for now, it's a, it's a fun surprise box. All right. We won't, we won't tell anyone about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, so, Abby, give us the origin story. Where did this business come from? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, in, in a previous life, I, um, I spent some time in the, you know, in, in the big bad world of finance, and I actually looked at some uh, you know, some, some companies that were doing, you know, food storage and logistics. And that was my first sort of foray into, uh, you know, the, the crazy amount of inefficiencies that existed in our food system. And, uh, you know, I used, to, I used to sort of, um, you know, read commentary about a ton of food that would get tossed out at the distributor level or at a warehouse just because it was, you know, routed the wrong way. And so they tossed out 20,000 oranges. Um, so I, I had a little bit of sort of contextual background in, in, in food supply chain and logistics. Uh, and then the, the sort of the, the light bulb moment, if you will, uh, was actually it happened not too far away from Philadelphia. I was on a, an apple orchard uh, in eastern Pennsylvania, and you know, uh, doing, believe it or not, one of my first uh, apple picking adventures. And you know, rather than spending time picking apples, I was actually a little bit more intrigued with the fact that the farmer, in particular, was going behind us, uh, picking up all the apples that had fallen off the trees and putting them into a giant bin and rolling them into a cooler. So I was really curious, and I asked him, "Hey, what?" What happens to all these apples that you're just putting in this little, uh, you know, this, this, this freezer facility? And, and he said, well, uh, these are our, our ugly apples. Uh, you know, they're, they're tree-run apples. They may have fallen off early. They may have some external scarring or discoloration. They're perfectly fresh, but grocery stores don't want, but don't want to buy them. So we store them. We give them to neighbors. But at the end of each season, we usually toss them. Uh, and that was sort of the, 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 the aha moment for me. And I, was, and, and, I was, and I was like, hey, I think there's, there's something to be done here because – I also happen to live in Philadelphia, where there are you know, a massive number of uh, food deserts and a large food insecure population um, who would gladly pay a big discount for, for this type of product. Uh, and so I, I started getting the skeleton, uh, skeleton of this market off the ground right after that experience. Yeah. So, Avi, I, uh, you, you know, this isn't the first time I've I've heard this idea. I taught entrepreneurship for 30 years, so I've I've seen various versions of this impulse. What is different, though, is it seems like you've figured out a way to make the unit economics work. So you, you had this original, this, this initial idea, but then how, tell, describe the search process for finding something that would pencil out economically. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think, um, you know, it, it's taken some time for us to get to a point where we, we sort of well, took some time to get to a point where we saw the light at the end of the tunnel and then get, get to some time after that to get to a point where we knew the unit economics were going to work out. Um, you know, for us, we, we, we understood uh, in the early days what the primary drivers were. And you know, that's, that's the first step, like understanding, hey, what are the major, you know, variable cost items in this equation? Uh, and then how do you price things in such a way that, uh, you know, you're still going to make money in the long run? Uh, and so, you know, we spent a bunch of time basically looking through, um, you know, labor costs, delivery costs, packaging costs, what the optimal, uh, you know, packaging was for different, you know, temperature zones. Um, how we price produce in such a way that it would still be cheaper than the grocery store, but you know we'd make 
enough margin on it for it to justify you know, existing as a business. So it took, I'd say, you know, a, a couple iterations for us to get to a point where we knew the numbers would work out. Um, and then the other thing I'll add to that is the numbers work out in a certain way at small scale and work out in a certain way at a, at a much larger scale. This is a type of business where unit economics look, you know, decent at small scale, good at medium scale, and amazing when you're you know, at true scale. Um, just because of what the, the cost drivers are. And so, you know, we, we spent spent quite a bit of time thinking through that and came up with an equation that really worked. And it, had you, one of the things that strikes me as distinctive about this model is the subscription model. And I'm sure you studied with great care the Blue Apron S1 and their unit economics, which are not so hot, actually. Um, and why did you, how do you, why does this work for you, the subscription model? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I, I think the key with the subscription model is implementing a subscription for uh, purchase behavior that is naturally a subscribing behavior. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, what that means is, in my opinion, there are a lot of sort of direct-to-consumer businesses these days that tend to sort of Put the word subscription, you know, in, on their platform just as a kind of a buzzword, yeah. uh, and they try to make everything subscription and basically sort of try to build, you know, LTV or lifetime value uh, via a subscription mechanism for a product or consumer purchase behavior that's not really by definition subscription. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not pointing to Blue Apron as, as having done that or any other products having done that, but I, I think the key for us is when we spent some time thinking through whether subscription would work here. The fundamental realization was, hey, grocery shopping is by definition something that yeah. happens every single week forever uh, for most households. And therefore, there is a way to convince someone that their produce shopping should be on a subscription online. Uh, and so we spent some time kind of thinking through what the what the consumer psychology would be there. Um, so that's why it works, because I think even even if we were not to implement a subscription, people would still buy this every week. And that's a key driver, whereas I think there are other businesses out there that make things subscription, but then they turn customers pretty quickly because it's not really truly a repeat behavior. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I agree. We probably shouldn't criticize Blue Apron on that front, but we could criticize the fashion companies that are doing this or the beauty product companies that are doing this in the yeah. sense that those behaviors are more episodic than they are recurring. Um, right. And then the other the other interesting thing is, you know, you'll have with a lot of subscription businesses, uh, you know, it's a tactic to also make it difficult to cancel, yeah. make it difficult to skip. Yeah. And then you sort of and, and I think what happens is in the early days um, as a company, you may be able to hide some of that uh, by, by sort of making it tough to cancel or, or whatever else. But then as you continue to grow, the, the, the truth becomes quite transparent to, you know, to the business, the customers, to investors. Um, so it's tough to sort of, uh, you know, keep that tactic going for a long time. Yeah. So uh, the other thing I wonder about this particular model, uh, you know, I'm somebody who, who cooks almost every day. And I also grew up in a family where we always had a garden. And so the notion that there'd be this box of random stuff is actually appealing to me. Are, did you find that your initial customers found that a feature or really a weakness in the in the model? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I'd say it's, the customer base is split. Uh, I'd say a very large chunk of our customers, um, and I can't give you an exact percentage, but a large chunk of our customers um, love the fact that it is a surprise box because it, it's sort of, you know, it's how nature works at the end right. of the day. You know, if you, have, if you have your own garden or you grow your own produce, you understand that things don't turn out exactly the way you want them and you kind of have to make do. Um, and, and when Mother Nature is in charge, um, 
uh, especially with kind of uh, the, the, the way climate's been treating us recently, things do change dramatically, and what you end up with isn't what you plan for, but you still make do. So I think a lot of our customers are fine with the, uh, the, 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 um, the surprise box. However, you know, there are some customers who have really strong allergies or preferences, and, uh, you know, our, our current model can't quite cater to them. Yep. Uh, hence, when we're thinking through how to allow customers to customize boxes, we're you know we're thinking it through, thinking at it through that lens, and actually trying to figure out how we can service um, you know both sets of customers. So, tell us a little bit about the geographic challenges. I suspect your freight economics look a lot better in Zone One than they do in Zone Three, and so in terms of the uh, the your shipping model. So, how have you thought through the geographic challenges, and have you had to put distribution points in more than more than one location? Yep, really good question. Um, so we're currently just servicing uh, the northeast of New England, uh, and we're just starting our southward expansion. So we uh, I see. we officially yeah. launched in the Carolinas, uh, North and South Carolina, uh, yesterday actually. Um, so so we're kind of gradually making our way down. So the way we kind of look at it is it's somewhat of a hub and spoke model, uh, and so we have our big distribution centers. Uh, we have one currently. We have, you know, we have we have some plans for some other ones across the country, uh, and those are where you know, lion's share of our produce will get sent to, get packed, and then we will essentially run uh, pre-sorted sort of line hauls into uh, kind of other uh, other spokes for the last mile component, depending on where we're going. And that's the model that we think makes the most sense and makes freight economics work. And essentially, uh, when we get to the point where the variable cost of, you know, of that freight reaches a certain threshold, it then makes sense to go invest in the fixed cost of having, you know, another hub or another spoke distribution center somewhere. Yeah. Um, so we kind of we're mapping that out as we go, um, but that's that's the current strategy. And and are you uh, how far backward into the supply chain are you integrating? Are you going back to the farm, or are there now distributors who specialize in second quality produce? Yep. So uh, most of the time we're working as far upstream as possible. So we're working directly with our with growers. Um, there's a couple exceptions where, you know, there's some benefit of working with a distributor, but I'd say 95 plus percent of the time we're actually working directly with uh, with growers. Might be actually maybe 98 percent of the time. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason, the primary reason being um, food uh, produce is already a, a, a low margin product to begin with. And uh, every touch point along the way, uh, there's margin degradation, and so the further upstream we go, uh, the better the unit economics will end up working out. Yeah, but it does it it does present challenge, right? Which is that you know avocados, for instance, you're you're not no one's growing avocados in the Northeast, so somebody has to get the avocados from Mexico or California to the Northeast, and that seems to be a it strikes me that would be a hard thing for a small company. Uh, it is, uh, which is why we, we do some interesting things with bundling uh, bundling shipments. And so if we're ever shipping something uh, you know, for, for that long of a distance, there will be many other things that the avocados are shipped with uh, yeah. so that the, the unit delivery costs for those avocados are not prohibitively high. Got it. Um, talk a little bit about supply and demand. It strikes me that uh, demand is probably more predictable in some ways, but but how do you manage supply? And are you, in fact, having to waste some pro- some product because of a mismatch there? Yeah, so demand is, you know, especially because our, our customers are um, subscribers or repeat purchasers, demand is relatively predictable. And 
we can model out our growth as well on top of the existing subscriber base. And we have a sense of, you know, of, of what we need to, you know, what quantity of food we need to purchase. Um, and then, you know, again, we have some flexibility because, you know, we kind of rescue any type of produce in, in, in the system. Um, so the demand side has, has, is pretty straightforward. The supply side is, is definitely uh, a few tiers more complex, um, not only because of the, the, the sort of somewhat unpredictable nature, but also because uh, we're dealing with so many suppliers. Uh, we're aggregating across dozens and dozens of growers that are located all over the country. And so making sure that not only is there a predictable supply, but there's predictable supply across every produce skew that we think we need to have available, or, or at least every category that we need to have available, and then also making sure that sort of the, the, the distances that produce travels make sense from a unit economics perspective, all that stuff we take into account. Um, it's working well today. I think uh, we, we spent a ton of time uh, and energy and resources kind of optimizing that, that supply chain model, and it's where I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of secret sauce in what we do. And we have we have an amazing team that does it, but you're right in that that that's probably the more challenging part of the business. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Abi Ramesh, who is the founder and CEO of Misfits Market, and you can check them out at misfitsmarket.com. Um, Abi, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, financing. So. Congratulations! It looks like you've got a big balance in your checking account. If if um, if Crunchbase can be believed, you raised sixteen million dollars last month. Uh, so that's amazing. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the financing journey when you started the business and what the issues have been along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yep, we've we've raised uh, we've raised about sixteen uh, and a half million dollars of capital to date. Uh, we so the, the business officially launched uh, in summer of 2018, um, so it's been roughly a year, technically a tiny bit under a year. Um, so we've you know we've it's crazy to think about that because yeah wow uh, we've come a, come a long way in, in, in 11 months. We have an amazing team. Uh, the, so so we're also fortunate enough to have uh, partners on the fundraising side, our, our investors who are um, you know very much so along for the along for the journey. And they're super supportive, and you know the, the folks who uh, who backed our backed us at the seed level came back and, and sort of doubled down and backed us again at the Series A level, uh, and sort of were really helpful in terms of getting other folks on board. Uh, and I think it's a crucial part of 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 this of the journey for this business, any business, but this one in particular, because without capital up front, um, it's I'd say it's virtually impossible to get this off the ground. Uh, and so we've we've been we've been fortunate to have some amazing backers with us. Yeah, well, I want to drill down just a little bit more because I I want to there's there's a few things that I'm curious about. One is this is a this is a little bit of an unusual business and definitely in an unusual geography for venture backing. Uh, did you find there was a challenge being based in Philadelphia? Did, were you tempted to head to New York or or California or Texas? Um, and and then maybe talk a little bit about how tough it was to raise the seed financing. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. So I I lived and worked in New York City, and then I moved to San Francisco, and then I actually came back to Philadelphia, um, somewhat specifically to get you know to, to get Misfits Market started in Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I I had a very I had specific reasons as to why I wanted to do that, um, and I you know I would say that. You know, is it harder to raise capital outside of New York and San Francisco? Yes and no. Um, yes, in that 
unless you have an existing network in those other cities and you and, and you have an in into the, the sort of VCs and growth equity firms that are that are located out western New York, it's hard to go get capital, you know, isolated in Philadelphia. Um, but know in that if you are, you know, if you have a good business or at least a good idea of what the business will become and you have an existing network, which I was fortunate enough to have, uh, raising capital from investors who are uh, in Silicon Valley or in New York is pretty straightforward. Uh, the other thing that, that I think we sort of benefited from the early stage from a geographic perspective is uh, a lot of VCs these days are, are, are trying to look outside of the Valley and outside yeah. of New York City for companies, partially because there's a lot of, um, uh, we'll call it inflation. Uh, yeah. I'll leave it at that. Uh, with, with, with in valuations. In valuation, exactly. And, and everything is incredibly expensive. And, you know, if you're a VC, uh, you know, the, the rounds you want to get into get closed, you know, before they even get opened. Uh, and so a, a lot of funds are now looking outside of Silicon Valley, and they're also realizing, hey, it's not the only place to start a company. Uh, and especially a business like ours that isn't a pure software company, um, there's a lot of companies like ours that do well that start outside of San Francisco or New York because, uh, you know, the, 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 the cost of hard assets, the cost of real estate, all that is a fraction of the price. Um, so, you know, if we had started this in San Francisco, I'm sure we probably would have had to raise, you know, 3x the amount of capital to get to where we are today. Um, so, and I think I basically explained that, um, hopefully pretty clearly to the, to the investor, investors that backed us and, and they understood it. And, and my point was, hey, I think, Philadelphia, it's a major it's a major city. It's located close to all the major cities in the Northeast. It's close enough to New York for, you know, for us to get talented, um, you know, talented team members from New York City if we want to. The real estate, you know, in Philly and across the, across the, the border in New Jersey is way cheaper. Uh, and there's an incredible talent pool in Philadelphia as well uh, because of all the universities here. And, and I use Penn as an example every single time. Um, so I think explaining that coherently uh, allowed me to get, you know, at least – get through the front door with a lot of these investors and then then it was all about the business yeah and and speak just a little bit more to the talent question because while silicon valley is is horrifying in terms of trying to attract tech talent in terms of what you have to pay uh it is also mecca for tech talent so what have you had to do on the tech talent side? Did you already have a co-founder or uh, someone, sort of a network of people that could be brought to bear? Or did you actually have to go into the labor market and find tech talent? Um, so I, I did have to go into the, in the labor market to find tech talent. Um, I, so I, I'm, I'm a self-taught software engineer. Um, so after, after a brief sit in finance, I actually started a, a software engineering school uh, out in San Francisco. So I, I had somewhat of a network in terms of, yeah. um, you know, and, and uh, a network of software engineers, or at least software engineers who could recommend good companies to find other good software engineers. And I understood, you know, what a good software engineer looked like and, and what tech talent and product talent looked like. Um, so, but despite that, I, I still had to sort of go and, and, you know, do a fair share of hunting. Um, you know, there's, there are a lot of fast growing companies that people don't think about in, you know, in the Philadelphia area. And so I spent some time talking to folks uh, who had worked there, who know people who had worked there. Um, so I, I think these days, no matter where you're located, if you're looking for amazing talent, you will have to do work. Uh, yeah. You'll have to kind of hunt for that talent, whether it's on LinkedIn or using recruiters or your network, you have to. Um, very few companies are, are sort of you know, fortunate enough to, to magically have inbound talent come um, until the companies are, are, are you know, very large. So we, we have to do a fair share of work in the beginning. Yeah. All right. Well, Abby, I have a funny question for you. I, I have a, 
a list of questions I like to ask almost everyone. And, and one of them is, uh, you know, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self? And, and I realized you're barely 25. Uh, so I wonder, <laughs> that's a stupid question for you, but I, but I guess the, I have to come back in 10 years and ask you the question, but I, but I do wonder how in this kind of business, I mean, you have, you have an amazing background. You've been an entrepreneur. It looks like since you were in elementary school. So I, I get that, but, but this is not the kind of business where you would normally think of a 20 a something person making it happen. Cause it's so logistically intensive. Maybe speak to has 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 your youth been a impediment or uh, a feature in terms of getting this getting this going? Yeah, yeah, it's, I like that question actually. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's probably been a little bit of both, but um, probably biased more more so uh, helpful than an impediment. I, I think the reason is these these industries and, and verticals that you don't think of as as uh, or we don't think of as um, you know relevant for for super young people end up being the ones that have in my opinion at least the most room for disruption um, and so you know when you think about uh, you know grocery chains and food supply chain and cold storage logistics and warehousing uh, I, I think just because those those verticals haven't been exposed to kind of like modern tech and product thinking, there is a lot of opportunity. Granted, you got to sort of beat down the door first and, and get in and understand a basic level of how everything works. For me, for example, understanding cold chain logistics and the entire world of produce. And, and I, I can tell you, pro, the produce world is one of the most complex uh, you know, universes out there. Uh, and and uh, the, the, the folks who deal in produce every day, they're basically commodities traders have deal with produce and, and they have a, it's a very complex job um, but kind of getting in the door and learning on that all that first uh, is, is crucial and I had to do that but once I did that uh, I realized that you know hey um, I think it's not b2b enterprise SaaS uh, software that I think that I can go crack it's actually industries like these where there aren't you know hundreds of thousands of people trying to go start a company and innovate in um, because I think there's a lot more disruption to be done here yeah. Well, Abby, it's a fascinating story. I can't wait to try the service. It's it's very interesting. So thanks so much for making the time to join us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.